with me? Do you feel the current of a culture that is giving up on gospel faithfulness? I mean, do you with me seek to engage your neighbor or your classmate or your workmate? The friend on the ball team or the extracurricular activity that you're involved in? You ever gotten right in the middle of a conversation seeking to talk to someone about Jesus Christ and get the cultural blank stare? Feel the wall go up? American culture is averse to the gospel. We are not the home team. Were we ever? Therefore, there has never been a day when a praying church mattered more. The best of our spit and polish are going to bring us to nothing in the face of unbelief. The future of vital, authentic gospel churches rests upon the collective resolve of those churches to persevere in faithful prayer and crying out. From where you view it, what is Calvary's future? Is it vital, engaging, influential Calvary directly attributable to a praying church? Or is it fading Calvary? Fading into, well, we come to worship and we try to make budget and we bury the dead at Calvary. That's who we are. Come with me to Luke 18 and let's think about 2023 and me and how God is calling us as never before to be a church at prayer. Jesus tells a parable in the first eight verses. Luke 18, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book in the New Testament. Isn't it great to spend some of the first hours of this new year together before the Lord? I love this. Luke 18, 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, 
He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Hear the word of the Lord. Now this morning, I want to go three different directions. I want to introduce the parable to you and in it, find two possible postures for the church waiting out the coming of Jesus. And secondly, I want to talk about the three challenges that come to people who pray, and the challenges are in these eight verses. And finally, I want to drive the force of the parable home. I want this parable to rattle around in our conscience and probe our life together this year. So first, Jesus lays out the two possible postures of the church awaiting his second coming. Please note that as he introduces the parable and Luke sets it up for us in Luke 18.1, he lays out an either-or choice. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Two alternatives are laid out. Praying or losing heart. It's actually a binary choice. It's one or the other. It's either praying or it's losing heart in the midst of the ravages of this broken world and the circumstances that we face. By the way, the question for Calvary Baptist Church this morning is, are we the praying sort or are we the losing heart sort? Daryl Bacchus said, God is all-knowing. God may not need prayer, but we do. So we pray as commanded. That's clear in this passage. Now, there are two potential postures of the waiting church, waiting on the coming of Jesus. Note that uh, this is about as profound as it gets for me this morning. Luke 18.1 follows Luke 17.37. It's the next verse. And what he's talking about as Luke 17 ends is the coming of Jesus. In fact, the Pharisees ask him a question. Hey, what about the kingdom of God? He starts into his answer and talks about the coming of Jesus. And in particular, talks about one family of faith. Or, 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 or was it? They were in Sodom and Gomorrah. Judgment falls. Lot gets out. Remember Lot's wife. Uh, she discerned in the escape how much of Sodom was in her. And so this is discussing the church's posture before the coming of Jesus. There are two possibilities. Possibility number one, a church engaged in unrelenting prayer. Look at verse three. Look at verse five. Look at verse seven. And don't miss the word always in Luke 18.1. They ought always to pray and not lose heart, always. 
Now, the hero in the story that Jesus tells is the widow. Now, by Jewish culture, the vulnerable, those left in tough circumstances like widowhood were to be cared for by the extended Jewish family. And it was embedded in Jewish law that they were to care for one so disenfranchised by the death of her husband. So, if that wasn't taking place, her appeal was left to Jewish courts who were very sympathetic to a widow in need because of what was embedded in the law about how widows are to be cared for. Now, this widow came to the judge. But there's an earnestness in her coming and a relentlessness that's exemplary. Look at verse 3. The phrase that's used is she kept coming. She didn't come once and ask and give up. No, verse 3, she kept coming. Verse 5, the judge cynically says she keeps bothering me. Verse 7 talks about crying to him day and night. If you can stand one more football analogy, she's like a defensive lineman chasing chasing the opposing quarterback. They just keep coming. They just keep coming. They are relentless. This is Reggie White, the old Green Bay Packer, just staying at it all the time, coming and coming and coming and coming. That's this widow. That's the picture. Now, here's the question for us. Where are the churches known for being in prayer before the Lord who are relentless, who keep coming, who day and night are crying out. Where are they? A few years back, uh, the pastor of Shadow Mountain Church in El Cajon, California, David Jeremiah, was diagnosed with cancer. By the way, who do you call when you are diagnosed with cancer? He phoned his buddy in Brooklyn, Jim Cimbala. And there's a particular reason why he phoned his buddy in Brooklyn because Jim is a pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church who has quite a uh, tradition of praying together collectively for needs. He wanted them to know that he needed prayer. And they took flight in relentless asking. Now, the whole import of the message would be a question for us. Would anyone ever call Calvary Baptist Church for such a reason? Do we understand the concept of unrelenting prayer at Calvary? I want to know more about it. Don't you? Tomorrow morning, 10 prayer requests will go out as is our habit every Monday morning to anyone who's on the Access Calvary prayer list. It will actually go to 322 email addresses. And Jay, ever the realist, has has always told me, Mounts, look, just remember, a lot of email goes to boxes and it's never opened. But I'm grateful that 322 individuals receive it Now, the question is, what do we do with it when we receive it? By the way, Griffin Cornell will not be on there this morning. 
tomorrow morning, but he certainly warrants our prayer. Uh, it was staged to be released because of the schedule of Christmas and New Year's. It was written late last week and staged, and then this came up with Griffin. So pray for Griffin, even though he's not on the list. But uh, I thank God for those of you who received that email. And I'm grateful for those of you who open it and think of it. And on your errand, and on your errands, and on your free moments, you're asking God for help because we need it. One possibility is a church engaged in unrelenting prayer. Now, there's another possibility, and it's here. They ought always to pray and not lose heart. Possibility number two is a church in decline. The decline shows up in two aspects. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 8. What Godet said was a church in carnal slumber. Wouldn't that be characteristic of Lot's wife in this story? He mentions two things. One, it's a discouraged church. Men ought always to pray and not lose heart. You ever been around a dispirited church? Do you realize it is self-evident when a church is discouraged? Um, the spirit of a church is like holiness in, in spiritual leadership. J. Oswald Chambers said, holiness is hard to define, but its presence or absence is easy to discern. In the same way, a church full of passion for Christ yearning for his glory, that shows up in the life of the church. Churches that are discouraged, that shows up too. This is the same term used in 2 Corinthians 4.1, Paul's charge, do not lose heart. What's that mean? Well, it means um, to be utterly spiritless, to be wearied out, to be exhausted. You can't hide that if you're a church. If you're a discouraged church, if you've lost heart, the other thing you can't hide is your enthusiasm and joyful energy to reach for everything God has for us to fulfill his purpose in our days. You ever been around that kind of church? It's really neat to experience. So a church in decline, they've lost heart. But a church also in decline, a church without gospel moorings. Look at verse 8. We're going to come back to this in a moment, in a little bit. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now that translation is accurate. It's one way to translate the words that are here. But what it leaves out is the definite article that precedes the term faith. In the New Testament, there is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, faith. But there is also the faith. And that is the body of gospel truth that's a part of gospel Christianity. So that Jesus says, when I return, will there be anything left of gospel Christianity? Christianity. 
will I find the faith when I come? One mark of a church in decline is they've lost their gospel moorings. Now, we've had a couple of hurricanes in the last year blow through Florida, and they'll have the before picture of the harbor and the after picture. The boats will be tied up at the dock, of course, and the storm will go through, and you'll look at the awfulest mishmash of boats out in the harbor, just completely unmoored from the dock. The ropes are split. The masts are broken. The sails are ripped all to shreds. And they're just out there floating around in various stages of sinking or turned over on their side or some of them capsized. And we live in the equivalent of an ideological hurricane today. And the current is very strong to just go ahead and give up on gospel Christianity, become unmoored. A church in decline. When I candidated at a church for the first time, a godly man sat me down and he said, well, Eric, tell me about this experience. I said, well, here's what's before me. And he said, okay, what are your thoughts? And we were talking and he said, I I want to give you one piece of advice. If you want to discern the health of the church, go in and sit down. And I was ready to listen, of course. Listen to them sing. He says, you can tell a lot about a church by listening to them sing. And I would add, as I was thinking about this passage this week, root around and find the place of prayer in the life of the church. Do they sing with joy? Do they pray with earnestness, believingly? That's a good place, if so. But a discouraged church loses its gospel moorings and can lose its witness. A church on its knees is not a church in decline. Kneeling is the position of leverage, is it not? But there's a reason why churches don't pray and don't continue in prayer, and he notes three of them in this parable. Let's consider them, because there are challenges to a church. Here's a challenge. We're going to be praying this year in 2023, but there are challenges that come to a church that prays. Let's think, consider the three challenges that are here. These inhibit praying. Challenge number one, we perceive that God is delaying a response to our prayer. Am I the only one who's ever been frustrated by praying and asking for something? And what gives? I ask in Jesus' name. And I'm waiting. And it appears nothing's going on. We perceive God is delaying a response to our prayer. Watch the time words in this parable. Many of us give up while waiting on the Lord. We've drawn the wrong conclusion in concluding my praying doesn't matter. Nothing happens when I pray. What did the lyricist say? He works in ways I cannot see. And then you get these ideas. If something does happen, we say, well, that was just a coincidence. That was going to happen anyway or or, uh, you know, that was a happenstance. And they're just, you know, serendipitous happenstances from time to time. 
And some say, Eric, no, no, what's happened is is, is, uh, people just never prayed. No, people have prayed and test-driven prayer and then given up out of their sense of nothing happened. Prayer comes with the necessity of leaving the results to the Lord. The delay did not inhibit this widow at all. She kept coming day and night and kept crying. We are drawing the wrong conclusion if we draw the conclusion that he isn't doing anything, so I ought to give up. We leave the results with the Lord. Remember, in prayer vernacular, that is... Not my will, but your will be done. Keep in mind that God's patience reflects his merciful desire that more would come to know him. And if we're praying in faith, faith is a substance of what we hope for in the evidence of what is not seen. If you were beside this widow, you wouldn't have bet on a response from this judge. It did not deter her from continually asking. Notice verse 7. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him? Notice the time words, day and night. Will he, another time word, delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. Verses 7 and 8 are full of time words. In God's timing, he answers prayer according to his will. The second challenge of praying is we conclude that God will never make the wrong to be right. Look at verses 7 and 8. The widow is in a court. That's her recourse to have the wrong be made right. You got to give it to this woman. One thing she never concluded was nothing is ever going to happen. Apparently, she never concluded that because she kept coming. Persuaded that eventually something was going to take place. And in fact, her perseverance was rewarded. Her perseverance in asking is exemplary. She's our model. She stayed at it. She kept going. She didn't quit. One thing that keeps us praying is the default logic that God is righteous, and we say with Adam, or with Abraham, and carry it in our spirit, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? What is the answer to that rhetorical question? Absolutely, yes. So that the wrongs will be made right. Right and righteousness, which seems to have fallen to the wayside of popular cultural fancy, there will be a day when again right will be asserted. The rule of God for our good and will be exalted. That day is coming. And having that default logic just keeps us going. But you say, Eric, look, I'm praying and look what's going on. By the way, I, I'm a bit of a news freak. You know, a part of it is... I know you're exposed to news and you're thinking about stuff and I want to relate to you and try to bring the text of scripture to bear on 
where we live and what the stories are. In fact, on Sunday morning, I have a little habit. I just check the headlines to make sure the world didn't blow up last night. Uh, just so, so, because it affects how people think and how they live. But I got to tell you, I'm not encouraged reading the news these days. I'm sickened at some of the trends in the news and, and what's going on. And it's like, Eric, aren't you praying about our culture? Absolutely, I am. Aren't you praying about our church's influence? Absolutely. What gives? I mean, look, you call this influence? Why don't we give up? No, because our default logic is there is coming a day when the wrong will be made right. When the right will be seen as right. Or how Isaiah puts it really artfully, I love it. There'll be a day when righteousness and truth will get up every morning and kiss each other. Is there anybody else with me who looks forward to that great day? What a day that will be. And that day is coming. And while we wait, you know what we do? We relentlessly ask for it to be. For it to be. Daryl Bach said, God has not forgotten the elect. And he, he can certainly be said he's listening to our prayers. Now, what's interesting, and some quit praying, this is a challenge of prayer, concluding God will never make the wrong to be right. Think of this judge's logic. Now, remember, this judge is a deadbeat. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't appreciate man. But he says this. In verse 8, there's a little phrase. I think it's verse 8. Let me make sure I got the right verse. Verse 5, the judge's logic is this. I don't want her to beat me down. Literally, that's, I don't want her to give me a black eye. This guy's a little concerned that his reputation is going to be besmirked by his not responding to her request that things be made right. And moved by nothing else, he was moved by his own reputation and the potential damage to his reputation if he didn't respond. He said, I don't want that woman to give me a black eye, so I'll just dispense with her and satisfy her request. Now, you talk about a reputation. The God of the Bible has a glorious reputation for having integrity and keeping his promise. And so, uh, and, and th- this is the logic of the passage. And we'll, we'll get into more of it, but the deadbeat was even concerned about his reputation. God acts and in his action defends the integrity of his reputation by his acts. And he is good and right and we are headed for a day when that will be self-evident to all. And we say with John, even so, Lord Jesus, come. And while we wait, we don't get upset at God that it's not happening at this moment, but because his merciful heart in drawing men to himself and given further opportunities for repentance and faith is elongating the ark out of his love for humanity. Not that any should perish, but that all men should be brought to repentance. 
a cry for righteous treatment, for justice, a cry for God's righteous ways to be revealed and be extended. Some quit praying because they say, that's, you know, I, I did that for a while and look at our culture, I'm, I, I quit. Now the third challenge is we give up the faith again, verse 8. When the Son of Man comes, will he find the faith on earth? Progressive, so-called progressive Christianity is rewriting the gospel with words like, we want to make it current. We want to make it relevant. You probably read with me the stories of uh, the changing of the Christmas liturgy in the Church of England to uh, embrace transgender ideology in some Christmas carols. You know, Eric, we, we need to give it, make it current. We need to make it relevant. We need to make it sensitive. We need to make it thoughtful, of course. We need to make gospel Christianity, you know, no, no, no. Let's get this progressive stuff where we're on the right side of history. Let's not be hateful. You're hateful. Eric, in a word, let's, 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 let's be more hip. George Marsden, the gospel historian, from a former generation, he's still living. Brilliant man. In an article a few years ago in Books and Culture, he said that, a striking sentence that I've never forgotten, he said, there is a hipness unto death. (laughs) Whatever that is, uh, I don't want to be involved in a hipness unto death. No, I, I, I... Certainly uh, not, in, you know, let's, let's be hateful for Jesus' sake. You know, I'm, I'm not an advocate of that. Uh, but Jude 1.3, earnestly contending for the faith, for gospel Christianity once and for all delivered to us. One challenge of praying is we just give up the faith, the, the faith. Is this the position of the church? before the coming of the Lord. Is that what's going on in the Lot story in Luke 17, which precedes this parable in Luke 18? The reality is that some don't persist in the faith and prove by not persisting in the faith that they were never in the faith to start with. The authentic persevere in asking and waiting, and asking, and asking, and waiting, and waiting, both are involved in prayer. The faith must be contended for. It's easy to give up. It's easy to retreat from the gospel. Again, Jude 3, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So, Calvary, what will it be in 2023? How about us? What will characterize us? What will be our posture, notwithstanding the challenges of praying and the challenges of this moment? Nothing short of relentless prayer will bring Calvary to 2023 and what God wants for us. Are there any widow-type prayers here at Calvary these days? 
This parable, of course, contrasts the unjust judge with our generous Lord. This is a common Jewish rhetorical device. The comparison is between this deadbeat judge who has no integrity, and even he responds, how much the more the glorious judge of all the earth, the God of the Bible will respond in holiness to our cries for it all to be right. And don't we all have that in our own spirit? God is nothing like the unjust judge. That's the point of Luke 18. Two times it said of him, he neither feared God nor respected man. God's nothing like that. And that should encourage us to relentlessly come. Because even he, when relentlessly sought, responded. And if he did, how much the more will God not respond? In 2023, will Calvary implore the Lord day and night? Look at verse 5. Look at verse 7. The trajectory of the story is this. Our requests should never run out. It's your well drying up. Verse 3, she kept coming. Night and day, crying out continually. We have a duty to maintain a posture of unceasing vigilance and prayer. And if we're going to make a difference in 2023, we shall. I was asked by a friend this week, Eric, how can I pray for you? I have a standard stock answer. You know what? I can try to be faithful, and I need your prayer to do that. But so can you. You can try to be faithful. But it is not even the aggregation, the coming together of our collective try to be faithful that's really going to make a difference in mission because we need something greater than the sum of the parts of our faithfulness for God's work in people's lives. It has to be more than just us. Now, I'm not tired of the work, but I'm tired in the work, and I love the work. But it's not even getting tired in the work that matters. What matters, John 15, 5, is apart from me, you can do nothing. There are things that only God can do, that he must do, if eternal consequences are going to come from the year that we shall have together in 2023, and so we shall pray. And my encouragement is that we pray relentlessly, coming night and day, crying out for God to do what only he can do because the stuff he does lasts forever and brings healing and wholeness that none of us can touch, but all of us gloriously love to be around. And so we shall all year cry out, for his help. May God make us all like this widow. Father in heaven, I pray that you would teach Calvary more about praying in 2023. If Jesus should tarry his coming, I pray that you would see in us a group of people who are nothing but weak, forgiven sinners who have a strong Savior 
and they believe that he is powerful to bring change and healing and help and wholeness. And so, Lord, we pray to you this morning that you would help us forward in this good year by being at work in our midst. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.